Good morning once again and happy Labor Day. It is Monday, September 7th, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. on KOPN. And all episodes can be found online at KOPN.org and on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, will give us an update on our current situation in Boone County, including testing, infection rates, hospital capacity, and I'm sure we will cover so much more. Dr. Elizabeth Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. How are you doing today? I am doing okay. I maybe I should say I'm ready to work. <laughs> so you know, this is a time when our community needs all of us mm-hmm. to be just at our best, and I am doing my best to be on my toes mm-hmm. to do what I can. So I've been seeing um, your and, um, testing graphics on social media and a lot of different pages and whatnot. Yeah. So thank you for yeah, spreading neither the word Jimmy about Kevin that. Nor I are, you know, we're not the latest up to date about things, but we figured out how to work Canva. And so here we are. <laughs> they look <you> know? good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thanks. Jenny did those. Nice. So yeah. So just to let our listeners know what we're talking about is that um, there's sort of been a little, there's been a perception and some chatter on social media about students at the University of Missouri and at other colleges feeling um, that they had a limited availability to being tested. And the messaging from the university has been to provide ways to get tested, but to also, uh, I think they're trying to push back against the members of the community who are recommending or thinking that it would have been a wiser idea and still would be a wiser idea to do universal testing of of students, and they are feeling that that would not be the best use of resources. And I'm trying to be very diplomatic about both sides because I think the conversation has gotten heated. So what I decided to do was to just see if I could make it a little bit more available for people to do to get testing. So if somebody wants to get tested and they would like to get tested through me, I have a, a – I don't know how to turn that off while I'm talking. Hold on. There it is. Um, to fill out an online form on my website at drolliman.com, be tested. And there's a comment section where you can say why you want to be tested, and that would be a place where I would encourage people to fill in their specific symptoms if they're having any. But there are other ways to get tested as well. Um, if you go to the website, New Health or at Boone Hospital Center, you will find links to um, ways to get a free conversation with a nurse or another provider you a test. So there are um, about as I've as far as I know four ways in Columbia without spending extra money on the provider to contact time to get a test, get an order or requisition for a test. And then the test also is no charge to the patient. The insurance is billed, and um, the uh, and insurance apparently is paying well for these tests. Um, but people without insurance, um, those tests are being paid for by um, CARES Act funds. So um, as long as we've got CARES Act money continuing to flow, um, then then that can happen um, uh, without charge to the person being tested. And then, um, uh, so Jenny and I, Jenny Chadwick, who's the host on Wednesday, and I were attempting to try to get that message out because we really want to counter the message that Somehow the university students are trapped and can't um, get any uh, help when they are feeling afraid and would like to um, 
um, the man eater had a, uh, their front page was um, uh, the type, the headline was we're not safe here. And I don't want any of our um, students to feel like they're unwelcome or unsafe here in Columbia, Missouri. We have the resources we can step up and, and meet their needs. Yeah, and I, I've just been, you know, thinking about all of the freshmen who have come to campus who it might oh, be their first time, you know, without family or uh, even friends around, you know, they might not know anyone. So, um, yeah, I think just ne- making them feel supported is important among all of the right. students, this too. Is, yeah, moving into college is for people who, who take that route, often sort of considered sort of a half step into adulting. And this is like we've just really done it, have in, increased the the um, the stakes are higher now. Mm-hmm. So, so a question you asked in one of your emails is, what about sending the students home? I think there have been people who've been very concerned about what has happened since the students have come to town, and maybe the wisest thing is to send them home. And and I think that as we consider as a community, and of course the university has to make those decisions, what is the wisest thing? We need to remember that if we have a little outbreak going on here, which it appears that we do, we have a hot spot, that it that a movement across geographic areas of large amounts of people um, would not be the next step towards helping us contain that. Um, that um, so sending students home to their who might be, you know, they might be living in multi-generational households or in um, multi-generational pods or communities that bringing these young people into their homes where they might be contagious is um, maybe not the wisest move. So I, as it looks like, at least for this week, it looks like we'll be managing this here together. Uh, Resources here and that we, I think that we're well positioned to manage it. It doesn't mean that I'm not um, uh, very concerned and uh, very dismayed and sobered and disappointed that we're in the spot that we're in. Um, so according to the, I'm going to back up a little bit and <laughs> say, so where are the numbers? What are we doing here? Um, what? Oh, my goodness. There we go. Um, so over the last week, we've really seen um, sort of record-breaking days um, after record-breaking days. So um, yesterday, the cases were 67, which is, uh, you know, less than last Sunday from the Sunday before that, but about in the same range. Today was 221, which was an all-time record. Okay. Um, but this one was significantly higher. And we had... Um, a hundred since the second um, until yesterday. Um, So, and you could argue, see, I posted this as, you know, potentially good news on my Facebook page and many people said, oh, you can't call this good news. Um, It's the Sunday of a holiday weekend. That means that people got tested. It might be true, but I'm going to celebrate where we can. Um, It has been uh, just about a week since the, um, uh, we closed the bars early and it, I am a little doubtful, but it is possible that that would have a stabilizing effect. So that's the hope, and I'm going to say that it's possible that's what this means. But we are we are seeing rapid rises. So when we were doing, you know, in the, through the summer, we were thinking 20 to 30 cases a day was a little bit concerning. Then we got up to 50 cases a day, and that was more than the health department could handle. And now we're at 100 cases a day. Um, 
And the health department at the beginning of last week, so a week ago, was saying that they were about a week behind contacting, so five days behind contacting cases, and another day behind being able to be in touch with their contacts. And that was at more like 50 to 60 cases a day. So we've added 500 cases to their case um, load since then. So um, this is concerning to me because it's heavy to block out the flood of cases to try to protect our hospitals, which we don't want to have be overwhelmed. Um, and contact tracing needs to be done in a timely fashion for it to be helpful. It doesn't help to tell somebody, well, two weeks ago you were exposed, so I guess your quarantine is over and um, I'm glad that that worked out well for you. What we want is to be contacting people within 48 hours of their of, of us knowing that they were in contact with a case, um, and we're not able to do that. So that is sobering. Um, the last I heard, we still have reserves in our ICUs, and um, but they are starting to fill with COVID cases. As far as I know, no hospitals have um, restricted their admissions or have uh, restricted elective surgeries. Um, and I, um, so they must, I'm not sure how their decision-making is going, but they must be feeling confident about that. I am also not aware of any concerns that we have in protective equipment in hospitals. Um, and the good news and the bad news about our new cases is almost all of them are in that 18 to 22 year range, the college age um, uh, people. They are not all attending colleges, but they are, um, you know, that's the demographic. 100% guaranteed to do well, but statistically most of them will handle this illness at home without a need for extra use of our outpatient facilities or our hospitals or our intensive care units or our uh, ventilators. It's not that that hasn't, you know, can't happen and that if we keep, seeing these numbers rise, it's not that it won't be very likely to happen. But right now, seeing that demographic is a little bit reassuring. The concern is that the virus does not feel, it does not, is not limited to a demographic. And we know that move about in the community as they have every right to and expose people of other ages. So that is the concern is that we, um, we are seeing a rapid rise in a group of people who um, would be expected to uh, share the virus with people in other demographics who'd be at a higher risk. So, and we are, you know, making remarkable uh, uh, news nationally. So um, the New York Times uh, has a demographic of where the outbreak is worst now, the metro areas with the greatest number of new cases relative to their population in the last two weeks, and Columbia, Missouri, and surrounding areas, the metropolitan area, is um, number six on that case, and has been going up um, every day for the last couple of days. So um, we are now, uh, our cases in the last two weeks are at 5.2 per thousand, and we are, you know, trailing other communities that have colleges, uh, Pullman, Washington, Huntsville, Texas, Oxford, Mississippi, Statesboro, Georgia, Ames, Iowa. So it is looking like, um, you know, for a long time it seemed like uh, nursing homes, meatpacking plants, and uh, prisons were leading the epidemic, and right now it appears that return to 
So. Yeah. So I, I have a question about hospital capacity, Dr. Alleman. Um, yeah. So you, you said that the hospitals aren't, you know, as far as you know, restricting they're they're not under incredible stress at the moment. Do you know if that's because they have had time, you know, this six or seven months since the pandemic really got into full swing to prepare for something, you know, like Boone County to become a hot spot? Or is this just, you know, their regular operating capacity um, and it's it's not being um, overburdened right now? It is my understanding that no, none of the hospitals have moved into using, you know, trying to use these, um, uh, what do I call reserve capacities in their intensive care units. So places in the United States and the world when things were intense in their play, in their, when the virus was spreading for hospital care would do things like, you know, convert pediatric ICUs into adult ICUs or move ICUs into uh, recovery rooms that were not being used because they had shut down their routine um, uh, operating rooms. Uh, Actually, some of them were in closets or in cafeterias. But as far as I know, that hasn't been happening in Columbia. And I am not really privy to that, but I think I might have heard. Um, uh, The Missouri Hospital Association website lists these these data, they tend to be about a week behind in reporting. So, um, I, yeah, I think that the hospitals are not feeling a strain right now. But again, it's one of those things that once the hospitals start to feel a strain, we may be behind the eight ball if we hadn't been, we haven't been changing things in our community before then um, because, you know, there's a delay exposed. It's usually about a week to two weeks before they show symptoms. It's another week to two weeks before they get sick enough to be in the hospital and in an intensive care unit. So we're looking at three to four week lag time. So once our hospitals, our intensive care units get full, we'll still have three to four weeks of the results of how we were living three to four weeks ago to live through um, uh, before we'll see a change. And, you know, honestly, right now we're living in a state and a country where our elected officials are very reluctant to uh, do another shutdown. And so it looks like doing the shutdowns um, did reduce uh, viral spread and reduced hospitalization. Um, But so it's an effective strategy. It's a very costly and painful one and one that it appears we have no leadership that's willing to do that. So our numbers right now, even just in pure case counts, um, are reflective really of that first week of students being on campus, right? So it might take some time for us to know. Um, So last Monday, I think you were um, mentioning a little bit with your guest about the positivity rate here and how high it Mm -hmm. is. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what, what does a high positivity rate mean? I, I think probably most of our listeners um, know what it is, but what does it imply here? In well, I'm just going to say what it is in yeah. case there is anybody who doesn't know. And that is what we do is we take the number of positive cases over a period of time and divide that by the number of the number of positive tests over a period of time and divide that by the um, and 
Sorry, and, you, you, you know, just those, cut out, Dr. Alleman. Divide the number of positive cases by the number of total cases, right? Is that what you said? The number of positive tests by the divide by the number of total tests. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we're both we're both stripping over that. <laughs> yeah. We're cases oh, and tests. Gosh. Okay. So, um, yeah, and then and what we um, what we're seeing is that ideally we'd have about five percent positivity. That is, that you do a hundred tests and you get five back that were positive. And what that means is because so many people who have this infection and can be spreading it are asymptomatic, about 20 to 40 percent, depending on whether you include the pre-symptomatic people. So we really need to be testing a lot of people who don't have symptoms um, to Mm. decide to figure out where the community spread is, especially in these younger people who are likely to have either no symptoms or really mild symptoms that you know, and this is allergy season where lots of people have been running nose and sore throats and fatigue and maybe a cough because of ragweed and not because of COVID. So we, and we really cannot distinguish between all of those things except by a test. And that is the frustrating part. So what we, what we know is that if we are positivity rate, it means that we aren't doing enough tests for the amount of spread that's happening in our community. Hmm. So when uh, we're looking at the positivity rate, we're probably testing about the right number of people, and when, if it's about 5%. And so it's been running between 10 and 15% all summer, so we knew we weren't doing enough. And now it's running around 40 to 50%. Um, and uh, I did talk to President Choi at the university last week, and he the positivity rate should be about 20%. He attempted to explain to me why that was, and it didn't make sense to me. Hmm. Uh, Deborah Howenstein, who's the former director of the public health department, has posted on her Facebook page um, that she believes the 44% rate. Uh, Dr. Howenstein does not have, you know, a dog in this fight. So I am going to go with the public health department's uh, reported number that Stephanie Browning and Deborah Howenstein are standing behind us. Okay. Which, if, even if you want to go with Dr. Ch- President Choi's um, number of 20%, that's still four times what it should be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, and what it means is that we are almost certainly missing a lot of cases. And so when we see these concerning numbers of cases, we just need to know that there's far more of that out there. Lots of smart people are doing, you know, having a positivity rate in the 5 to 10% rate. We think that the numbers of people who have had this virus is 10 times the number of people we're catching by doing the tests in their noses. Wow. So we just need to know that there's a lot more of it out there than we can see. Mm-hmm. And going... It's, you know, it's like if you, if you see one mouth in your house, you know there's more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And going off of testing, I've heard a lot of people recently, I think even more than um, ever in this six or seven month span saying, you know, I'm going to go home and visit my parents or it's been so long since I've been able to see my grandma. So I just really want to get a test to, you know, make sure I'm not positive before I go do these things that are maybe a little bit risky. Um, But I've heard, you know, the testing, it doesn't really guarantee you like that. So can you talk about that process a little bit and and when you can rely on a test and when you can't really? So the test is pretty reliable. It does all tests 
in a lab test can be wrong at any time mm-hmm. in any person in any search. You know, we often like we've got a lab test. We believe that to be certain. So um, the the false negativity rate, the false positivity rate, that is you, the false negative rate that you you were told that your test was negative, but you really have the infection, may be somewhere between ten and thirty. The technology of the test, I. Don't know why we're that is the truth because the folks at the wastewater, you know, doing the PCR wastewater are thinking that it's probably higher than that. But um, so it is possible that you could get a negative test and it's just wrong. The other thing is that it takes us 48 to 72 hours to get the test back, the test result back, and it's only going to tell you what was happening on the day that you were swabbed. And you can go for positive at any time. If you had a direct exposure, if you're the, the close contact of a case, which is defined as more than 15 minutes, less than six feet away, regardless of whether you're wearing a mask, then you can, we're watching those people, you can go from time, I mean, negative to positive, that is, you can start shedding the virus and become infectious anytime from two days after that exposure to 14 days after that exposure. So you can get tested on Tuesday, get your result back on Thursday, but you could have become infectious in that time. So we do not, I think that there are people who who understand that there are families in their lives who want to protect those people, who also would like to live a life that is less restricted than our most vulnerable people. And so they would like to date, go to parties, work. Um, I don't they'd like to sing in a choir and then they go to church go to a movie inside all of those things and then they would like to go back and visit these people and their families who are vulnerable or they work in a nursing home and would you know understand that the people they take care of are vulnerable and they would like to be able to figure out a way to sort of move back and forth between the vulnerable and less vulnerable people. And we don't have a tool to help people do that safely, Mm -hmm. which is why we're asking everybody. Dr. Allman, you just cut out a little bit. Can you repeat what you said? So this is why we're asking everybody to be careful all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and talking about precautions that people can take, um, We've we we know masks. We've been wearing masks for a long time now. Right. Um, and and I don't know if there's anything you want to say about masks specifically, but I have a question about face shields because I'm seeing a resurgence in face shields without masks. And I'm wondering if, you know, um, you know, do those work as well? Do they not work as well? What's your take? What have they you are designed? Yeah, they are designed to be used they're designed to do is in high risk, high in healthcare. They are designed to protect your eyes from getting splashed mm-hmm. in case you, um, in case wearing protective goggles is uncomfortable or for some reason not something you can do. So that's what they are. That's a tool they're designed for. If you think about it, if you breathe out wearing a face shield, a lot of your breath is going to flow around the box. Um, so I think it is something that people who, for whatever reason, cannot wear a mask are using 
to try to do something, and it's, it may be better than nothing. I am unaware of any evidence where people have tested that. I'm also hearing a lot of people be, um, be doubtful about masks because clearly they have holes in them that are larger than a virus. And that's true. And I was concerned about that initially, too, because many of the masks that we use in, you know, the N95 masks are designed to have holes in them smaller than a virus. But it turns out that viruses aren't like squiggling through these things all by themselves. They are riding around on droplets and maybe and probably and on aerosols. So these uh, and those larger than the hole in a tightly woven fabric mask, although maybe not small enough, maybe not large enough to be deflected by these stretchy fabric gaiters that people can pull up from their necks over their faces. And we don't know whether that's because it's too close to the mouth. It's, it's an initial preliminary study that needs replication, especially before we start yelling at each other about them. Um, but so, the, so I do want to say that there is, it was a theoretical concern, and then in practicality, it appears that um, any mask that is um, more than one layer made out of fabric, uh, uh, cotton, fairly tightly woven fabric, is working well. Uh, but other things we can do, of course, hand washing um, this gets, you know, we just beat on all the time. It's like eat your vegetables, and most of us are not as good at hand washing as we're supposed to be. So washing your hands more than 10 times a day is statistically associated with a reduction in all transmission of all respiratory illnesses, which is why people in healthcare settings are always washing their hands. Hand sanitizer is for use when you cannot wash your hands, so it does not replace hand washing. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and soap and water is all you need for your hands, and it's really all you need for the surfaces as well. Turns out that are really a big deal. They're mainly an issue if the surface is still wet from somebody's droplets or aerosols, and another person touches it and then touches their hand, uh, touches their face. So it's not like the virus can't get through your skin. It's just that once it's on your hands, you're going to move it to your face, which is why gloves are not of any help because you are just as likely to move the, all the stuff to your face when you're wearing gloves. And, and so gloves are for use with things like if you're going to contact a sore and you think it might have herpes on it, and herpes can infect your skin. So it's to protect your hand skin against the things that you might be touching. Um, and, and this is for respiratory illness, gloves are not helpful. Uh, staying six feet away. Doing everything you can outdoors, we're just about to move into a glorious season here in mid-Missouri where many things can be done outdoors. Um, and uh, taking vitamin D uh, seems to help people modulate their immune system so they can respond better but not over-respond to a virus. Um, people are recommended to take 2,000 international units a day. Everybody I recommend that to says, yes, but I get enough sun exposure. And I'm going to tell you that the official recommendation says regardless of your sun exposure. It turns out that the ability to make vitamin D out of sun exposure is very like, uh, heritage in a way that we cannot really predict by your age, by, other, by the rest of your diet, by how often you bathe, and by other variables we haven't figured out yet. So there are many people who are... 
still have significant vitamin D deficiencies. So I am recommending that everybody who's an adult take 2,000 international units of vitamin D a day, regardless of your sun exposure. And the only people who should not do that are people who are under the care of a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant who told them not to, or they've been tested and they've been given a specific recommendation. And then children need to have their dosages modified. Uh, and you can look that up online for your particular child um, or talk to your health care provider. Um, but vitamin D seems to be really important in all respiratory illnesses and in the immune function and particularly where we're getting these these immunological overreactions. Hmm. All right. All we're right. at, we're at uh, 929, Mallory. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do to, to sign off? Well, I think um, we just wanted to let listeners know that um, we would love to hear your questions and comments and insights. I mean, there's a lot happening right now. And Dr. Alleman and I can can try and anticipate questions as much as possible. But we love it when we hear directly from listeners. So um, if you have a question, you can call 573-874-1139. And you'll either catch one of our KOPN staff members, me or Tim, or um, leave us a message and, and we'll um, we'll probably air your question. Um, or you can email gm at kopn.org to send in your question. Or we're on Facebook and Instagram. You can send us a direct message, comment on one of our posts. Um, and I don't know, Dr. Alman, is there any other ways for listeners to get in touch with their comments or insights? That's the only ways I know about. Mm-hmm. And then if you want tested, MU Healthcare website, Boone Hospital Center website, or my website, www.dralleman.com. You can, uh, the, the whole process should be free of any cost to you uh, as far as money goes. Will you say your website one more time? It, it kind of glitched yeah. out. DrAlleman.com. That's D-R-A-L-L-E-M-A-N-N.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us, Dr. Alman, for sharing all of your insights. Um, I, we we at KOPN and I think all of our listeners really appreciate these these thirty minute updates. So, um, I hey, hope you have welcome, a good Mallory. rest of your we'll day. Look forward to talking to you next week. Sounds good. All right, next Monday. Bye. See you then. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. If you missed part of this program or want to share it with your friends, you can find it later today at KOPN.org and also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can catch us live again on Wednesday at 9 a.m. with Jenny Chadwick as the host. And then next Monday, Dr. Alleman and I will be back. Um, Thanks again for tuning in to KOPN 89.5 FM. Between the Lines is up next. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening.